Welcome to Lead Time Chats, where you can listen in on unscripted conversations between engineering leaders and other influential folks in tech. I'm Jean, and I'll be your host. Lead Time Chats is brought to you by Range. Range helps hybrid teams check in asynchronously about what matters most. Know what's happening through status updates that pull from tools like GitHub and Jira without scheduling yet another meeting. Checking in with Range creates more focused time for heads down work, all while feeling a deeper sense of connection and belonging with your team. To learn more about Range, you can check it out at range.co. Hey, Jack, thanks for joining me for Lead Time Chats. Hey, Jean, thanks so much for having me. This is really yeah. nice. So today we're going to talk about the topic of technical debt. So both paying down technical debt and accruing technical debt. And to start off, Jack, can you explain at a high level, like how do you think about technical debt and financing it? Yeah. So I, I like the word financing. I use that a lot when I talk about it because I think we all we all have an experience of technical debt and like some some nuance to like the stuff that's the worst or the stuff that like is the most urgent, but there's like not a whole lot of sophistication to measuring it, or we, we might try, but it's mostly just, you know, different heuristics of like how, how much, how fast is it getting really bad or how many of us on the team are impacted by it or how often do we have to you know pay the cost? But there's a flip side of that, which is like debt financing isn't just people taking on debt. It's they're taking on debt in order to make investments. Like mm -hmm. if you are wise about this, you could take out debt at a known interest rate, hopefully low, and then make interest or make uh, investments at an ROI that's higher. And if you get the numbers right, if you're right about the values, then like you, you profit. And I think that's actually what we do in software engineering most of the time, particularly in startups, right? Where mm -hmm. time is extremely short. So you got to take on a lot of debt, actually. Financially, the company's taking on debt obligations to shareholders, but also sometimes even a debt financing round. And then you cut corners in the code and the systems you have to in order to do something. But the question is, what's that something? And mm -hmm. one version of that investment is features you launch today, which is great and definitely useful. But another is like something that prevents you from taking on debt in the future. What are the things that are investments you make now that prevent future debt? And my favorite example of this, I think at another company might be Amazon which kind of famously ran thin to zero margins from like the beginning to now. Like every dollar brought back in was put back in R&D. And, mm. and teams were frugal and they were fast, but they also like didn't just do th things in the short term. There's very little uh, in AWS, for example, there are very few services that have been shut down because they were built quickly and then like crashed. You know, that doesn't happen. Google shuts everything down. But AWS, everything, every AWS service is launched. If it's deprecated, it's like, okay, in five years, we're shutting down the service. We're like, okay, fine. Right. There's some kind of um, different timeline being taken into account. And I think that one of the things that we as engineering leaders could do a better job of is thinking about what are the shortcuts my team is taking now? Or what are the places where we have debt where it's so bad we need to address it right now? And what are the areas that are so ripe for investment that independent of anything that are, we wanna do for product reasons, we should be making investments right now because it'll pay off. Yeah. And a simple example might be like consolidation. Mm -hmm. You simplify the system, that's gonna pay off forever. But both sides are really important, I think. Yeah, I like this, this mental model you have of debt because I think a lot of times 
people's mental model of it or team's mental model of it is, is quite simplistic, right? Like it's either, oh yeah, this is debt we should pay off or this is debt we shouldn't pay off. Or it's even more simple of just like, oh, we have so much technical debt. We need to, we need to work on it, right? Without, and, totally. and if you talk to a startup, I mean, you and I know, like if we talk to a startup and someone's like, oh my God, this, this code base has so much technical debt. I mean, we'd be like, good. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Like it yeah. would be really bad if you had yeah. zero technical debt, but I think yeah. for some engineers, that's kind of their, they're like, oh, we should do everything right. And then we would have mm -hmm. no technical debt, but actually it's this, like this, this trade-off and prioritization problem. And, and obviously like, you know, the first car I bought, I, it was 0% interest. So I just paid it every month because I was like, well, you know, technically I can then spend that money and invest it somewhere else. But like, we don't tend to think about it the same way when we approach technical debt. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right about a startup that has no technical debt, has <laughs> such a small code base that it probably doesn't actually do anything. And that startup mm -hmm. is not going to exist in like nine months, you know? Right. Uh, one of the things that the 0% the interest reminds me of this question somebody asked me once about why is it that we're, the, the team I was on, we were spending time doing technical debt work that was like 20% time or something. Like it was, it was an initiative to pay down technical debt, but it was very broad. It was like, we're just going to spend, you know, one day a week or 20% mm -hmm. of us or something, you're going to work on technical debt. And somebody said, that's like if you had a student loan and a payday loan. And you had $2 and you put one on each, like, mm -hmm. this is not a wise distribution of time. Like let's find the highest debt interest rate and let's yeah. just pay that down. And so we came up with this simple system where, well, it seemed simple at the time. I don't know if it was usable, but it was, what are the different dimensions across which each problematic area is getting worse? So mm -hmm. if it gets worse with every new record that goes in the debt database, well, then what's our, you know, our, our forecasted data growth? If it gets worse with every new engineer you add to the team, okay, what's our forecast to hiring growth? If it gets worse with every new user you add or every new feature you add to the system, then we just sort of look at, okay, how bad is it across each of those and how many of those does it make it worse? Like there might be some sort of core tooling where every time you add any new feature or the data grows or every day that goes, <laughs> it's like, it's worse. There's this like combinatorical right. explosion of complexity. You're like, okay. Right. You're like, this is a five, five vector yeah, technical yeah, debt totally. problem. <laughs> yeah. Or it's like, it's like O of N squared or something like it's, this is really bad. Right. Yeah. And then there are other places. I usually see it as like, there's a static page somewhere that's in backbone or it's jQuery mm -hmm. and oh, it's so ugly. It works and nothing depends on it. And it depends on nothing. Yeah. When is the rec what is the interest rate on that? It's a 0% loan. You can mm -hmm. pay that down tomorrow or in five years and it takes the exact same amount to pay. Yeah. But something getting worse, especially if it's in the middle of your system where you have to encounter it a lot and every day you're making changes, maybe it's in your build system or your development setup and every day you're paying the price, mm -hmm. that is a very, very high interest rate. So if you have some time, pay that down. And personally, I think that the whole like, we're going to spend this much time on technical debt is the really the wrong framing where it's really, what are the properties we want to be true about the system? How bad should the worst part of it be? And then just like make it better. Just decide mm -hmm. our goal is nobody gets frustrated building this kind of stuff. And then this known debt is just gone. And just work on it until it's done. The same yeah. way that you would work on a product until it's finished, you know, launch it. Right. You wouldn't just say like, oh, let's send two engineers over to work on that feature for two weeks yeah. and then 
Yeah. We'll see where it gets to. <laughs> Nothing to cut scope, but launching a known fully broken feature, it's going to like cost so much time and like brand and customers will churn. Same thing with technical debt. If you're going to like migrate from a V1 to a V2 and you only go halfway, you're in such a better worse world than if you just kept with the V1, right? Oh my gosh. One of my, I guess one of my proudest accomplishments when I was at Medium was kind of dealing with the aftermath of one of those situations, but it was like, you know, someone's like, oh, here's the new way to do it. And then they'd get mm. through maybe 10 to 20% yeah. and then drop it. And then like yeah. a year later, someone would be like, oh, this is inconsistent. Here's the new way to do it. 10 to yeah. 20%. <laughs> and then it was like three or four of these yeah. like piled on top of each other. And like whoever you asked would have a different answer of like how to thread everything through the whole mm -hmm. front end and back end. I was like, this is, this is not working. Like we yeah. just need to choose one, like one area, one, we need to choose one and then like get everything there so that people are not so confused when they're building yeah. new features. How did you get to the end of that work? How did you actually get to finish trying to fix it? So there were various, there, I mean, I, I, a lot of it was just like organization, like, okay, here's the spreadsheet of the like 200 things we need to migrate. Okay. You know, make it fun. Like when it's done, it like turns green or something. People are like, "Ooh, I wanna, I wanna do some of those." And I, I schedule like one dayers where like, like we just have one day. I'm like, okay, whoever's free that day, come go in this room. We'll like, you know, migrate a few. I migrated a bunch, and then at the end there were a bunch that were the zero interest, and then we just like put them in a file, and we were like mm -hmm. legacy, legacy notes, like. <laughs> <laughs> don't touch them <laughs> but then awesome. it's clear right it's clear yeah. like okay clearly this is not worth the time it would take to disentangle them and and migrate them but that's okay we've like acknowledged that that's kind of this we didn't have that terminology but this is like the zero percent interest yeah. um, that we're taking on here yeah i love that i love that and then it simplifies the system so that there's just fewer things for anybody to have to worry about. Right. And if anyone ever gets in there, it's in the file legacy, right? And so you know, yeah. okay, this is not the way to do things now. So right. like, just like where you put it and the, the semantics are important. Really I'm great. curious, <laughs> this is kind of a, I, I don't know how you'll take this, but I feel right. like people are not necessarily great with personal finance. So if you, <laughs> yeah. like if your use analogy you're using is kind of like finance related, do you find that people are like, Oh, that that makes sense. Or are they like, I don't even I don't even understand it for my personal finances. So like <laughs> this, would probably, this would probably explain why people's eyes glaze over as they use this. Yeah. yeah. No, I think of it like I'm not in financing. I do, I do what you and I do for them. Right. I'm not in so I'm I'm not even sure if my metaphor is right, but I think of it in terms of like um one of those you know, capital funds that just looks for a business that has a lot of value in it that's struggling and they go and they fix it. Like there's some kind of, there's a way they can deploy this hundred million dollars here and then later it turns into a billion dollars. There's like a, mm -hmm. there's a discipline outside our line of work where people look for those opportunities and they take advantage of them and they get extraordinarily wealthy. Right. And most folks looking at that kind of activity, as long as there's no, you know, shady stuff, would say, yeah, that is value creation. Something exists that didn't exist before. They like found the right lever and they pulled it really well. And, mm -hmm. and actually that brings me to something that I think is kind of related where if we're in a, a senior enough position in a company to start being able to think about the kinds of long-term investments, one of, the, one of the things we've got to settle first is what does this company have an appetite for in terms of product development? Like, how broad can this company imagine the product growing? So when I was at Square, 
I remember early on, people like people still get Stripe and Square confused. If you work at one, people assume you were like they'll use the words interchangeably. Nobody can really tell mm -hmm. the difference. And that's fine. But early on, there was this key distinction where Stripe seemed to have this one main thing that was really good, the ability to take credit card payments online. And Square had like this, that we call it the reader, everybody else called it the dongle, yeah. and then a handful of other products. And it went into the direction of merchant services more generally. And it was a really different approach, two different approaches to how to design your system. Because if you're taking one great feature, one great product and just scaling it, you build the infrastructure and the like internal platform one way. But if you're creating a flagship product and then you want to use that just to fund 40 adjacent products, mm -hmm. you, you actually like build your system very differently. It's differently mm -hmm. shaped. Like if you're building Microsoft Word in an environment where you expect there to be Excel and PowerPoint and access right. and everything else, you, you just build it differently. You build your menus differently. You build your branding, your shared libraries, all of it. And so mm -hmm. one of the things that we need to figure out is in the context of our business right now, what is the appetite for going broad? And mm -hmm. if it's large, then we need to prepare our system for product number two, flagship product number two. You know, Slack started as a game, right? Flickr started as a game that there's like, there's the, the product that you start the company with. And sometimes you pivot to a different one or you just add a second one. And the, the ability to successfully do that pivot or just add another product or 10 more products or 30 more products mm -hmm. really depends on the investments made early on. So that's one of the things we need to do with that time and energy we recoup from paying down the big debts. Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense because I think a lot of times people just think of technical debt as like, you know, you open up a closet and it's cluttered mm. and you're like, okay, I got to declutter the closet or I got to make it tidy. But like, what are you, what are you doing that in service of, right? Or like, what are you either, what are you doing that so that you have more time to do something else later on? Or what are you not doing so that you can invest in exactly. the big bets or the long-term investments? Exactly. And there's this, this question of velocity kind of baked in all of this where the debt is a high interest rate, not because it's rough to do, but it's because either it slows us down right now or it will stop us completely at some date in the future, right? There's a cost in terms of our time that competes with the time we wanna build uh, new things with. But the, the flip side, the investments, they, they buy us time. Like there's a, mm -hmm. there's a velocity found there. And there's a lot of good literature and like the book Accelerate is excellent on how to, how to move fast. But most of the way we talk about it, it's quite linear. There's this closet. It's full of nasty stuff. It's making us go slow. We want to go fast. But I think there's another level of that, that particularly at the executive level of engineering leadership is, okay, there's a way to get stuff out of people's way so they move fast at like full mm -hmm. speed. But once they're there, how do you make it so that they could possibly go faster than that? Like, what is full speed in your org? Like, how do you change the substrate of your company, of your engineering setup, so that full speed itself increases. Mm -hmm. You know, how do you, how do you create a system where you could hire two new grads and assign them to build a new product mentored by a pretty senior person internally who could spend a few hours a week and they're able to launch a new product in three months, just the two of them. Mm -hmm. What would have to be true for that to exist? If you think about that for a moment, you think of all these investments you'd have to make. Like, oh my gosh, yeah. we'll have to do documentation. We'll have yeah. to have shared libraries. Things have to make sense and are be articulable. And the words we use in meetings to talk about our system have to match the names of database tables and source mm -hmm. code files. Right? Those right. investments, I think, give us this radical acceleration and not just, not just an acceleration, like not just a high velocity, but like literally an acceleration.
over time, it goes faster and it goes faster at getting faster. Mm-hmm. And there's something about those investments I think is a little hard to talk about because we don't have a good speedometer, honestly. We don't know how to say this is the speed of engineering. It's just mm. here's how many commits we're making or so or deploys, right? It's a little tough right. to, it's very subjective. But one thing I'm hearing though is that it's not just about the technical debt, right? There's like this organizational debt of like, what, how are we talking about these things? Are the, are the ways we talk about it in the document matching, mm. you know, the database tables or these yeah. sorts of things that are not necessarily like, oh, we need to refactor this file. Mm-hmm. But yeah. I, I appreciate that the way you talk about technical debt is really connected to everything else, right? Because like one thing I've seen that is not, it's kind of an unhealthy dynamic is like, non-technical folks will kind of, you know, roll their eyes. And I was like, oh, engineers, they're always talking about how they need to refactor something and, and like pay down tech debt. And then yeah. engineers, are, I was like, oh, my, my PM doesn't understand that like, this is actually going to help us move faster. And so they just like not understanding each other. But I guess what I'm hearing a lot from you is you're not even really talking about, like maybe not even using the words tech debt, right? Like using other words, like you know, what do we need to do to get to this point? Or, you know, talking about the outcomes you want and what the tech debt is in service of either accruing yeah. or paying down. Exactly. And I do try to avoid specifically the phrase tech debt when possible for exactly <laughs> that reason, because tech debt is often framed as something where an engineer has to fight for the right to do the thing that the company needs. And often the engineer doesn't know the difference between this is something that bothers just me or something that's an existential threat to the company. You know, like if you do payment modeling of some kind and the math is wrong, existential threat. Mm-hmm. But if it's just like, like poorly organized and you're the only person who has to maintain it, like that's not, that's just, that's your own personal pain. And often yeah. doesn't know. But I like to think of it, instead of talking about tech debt and like fighting for the right, I like to think in terms of inertia of the whole system. How mm-hmm. big is the system? Not in terms of lines of code or data, but in terms of cognitive overhead. How many concepts might one run into when trying to make a change? You know, we're all familiar with spaghetti code where you change something over here and it you know, messes with something over there. Systems do look just like that, whether it's mm-hmm. spaghetti code in a function or an application or across an entire system or all the environments of a system. The larger the cognitive load is, the slower you can make any change. And product yeah. people get that totally. Like, because product and design run into the same problem. You know, mm-hmm. if you've got 40 items in a menu, at the top level, then yeah, they get that like, this this is not an environment where you can be effective. So mm-hmm. you say, well, we could add this thing, but we've added so many things that this is really gonna add more inertia to the system. Are mm-hmm. you sure this is the last kind of change we'll need to make in this area for a while? And then even someone outside engineering can, can reason with that and say, actually, no, we have a lot of plans here. You better make it easy to work fast here. And then you can go yeah. do it. Yeah, and I think that really highlights the importance of find, not just saying, oh, it's really hard to talk about, so we're not going to talk about it, but finding ways to talk about it that lands with you know, the people you have to work with. Because I have seen, I, I've talked to people who have said, oh, yeah, the way I get around that, of like having to fight for the right is that they just put in buffer time and then they do it, you know, they kind of do it. But then what yeah. you're saying is true. It's just like for one engineer, it's hard for them to know is that only affecting me or is it affecting, you know, the whole engineering org and, 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 and also yeah. poses an existential threat, existential threat to the business. And so that feels like that's always felt like a really unhealthy way to deal with it. 
to me yeah, of like, yeah. let me just like never talk to my PM or anyone else about tech debt, but just always add on a few extra days when I, when I give my estimates and then I'll just kind of like use that time to, to work on tech debt. Yeah. I but I could see if, if it's, if communication is really poor and there's not a lot of trust or, or, I mean, that could be a way to, to get around it, but it's probably not a, yeah. a good long-term it's solution good if you're, yeah. Yeah. If you're thinking about how to, how do you make the most high performing engineering org? That's probably not, not the best way. Yeah. And this actually fits the same, is the same shape of a problem that exists between any two teams, engineering or not, where I have data that's available to me. You have data that's available to you. Mm -hmm. I know some things that are important to do that you don't know about. So I will secretly do them and lie to you about the resources <laughs> I'm consuming. And you know some things that are important to do to the company that I don't understand. So you will do the same. And then as long as we get lucky, there's no conflict, but inevitably we're going to come into conflict. Like, I don't even know what Gene's team is doing there. Mm -hmm. You're the, you're, you're the engineering lead and I'm the finance lead. And I'm like, I, my team is doing the right stuff and we understand <laughs> and you don't understand it. And that's because you, you're ignorant about our, our thing. But what's missing is a way to actually combine those two sets of knowledge into a, a union and mm -hmm. talk about that as a whole. What is it this company is doing? What debts has this company taken on generally? What obligations for future work does it carry? How do we, mm -hmm. how do we reason about that? And building relationships enough to uh, be able to have those conversations as I think absolutely worth it. Right now I'm working, I'm at PathStream, this education startup that I absolutely love. And my um, product and design partners have really done the work to figure out what it's like to be in engineering. They don't all know all the details of the code, but mm -hmm. they get it. So when I talk about inertia, when I talk about this hurts and this part's not so painful to work in, they get it. And I can understand theirs well enough that we can we can put together the superset and I don't have to fight for, yeah. okay, ignore these people while they do the right thing you don't understand. Right. And some of that's, I mean, some of that's not even tech debt related. That's just relationship building. Right? It really is. Yeah. Yeah. I remember um, one of the teams I was on at Medium, we had talked about like having a team offsite where we kind of like map out the the tech debt and like the landscape of the of engineering product and design. Cause like products got its own debt, right? Design's got its own debt. And we were like, what if we could get it so that you know, engineering had to present the product debt and to kind of like build this empathy around like that's all amazing. these three functions. <laughs> yeah. I love that. Yeah. But it's, that's, I mean, and that's just like empathy and relationship building mm -hmm. as much as it is actually exposing where the debt is. Yeah. I really like that. One thing that I think unifies those three disciplines pretty well is this metric that I learned from Alyssa Henry when I was at Square. She leads all of uh, engineering at Square. And before that, she was at Microsoft. And before that, she founded Amazon S3. <laughs> she like, I think, I don't know the exact story, but it's something like she got four people and like just started the team. And now it's where everything is stored. But this metric that she uses was major features launched per engineer decade. And you have, every organization has to do the work to figure out what is the major feature or what is a feature, what's a value of feature, are there different tiers? The important thing is that it's something end user visible. It doesn't matter about the internal changes. It's like what new value has shipped from the company. So that's your numerator. And then you just take the entire headcount of engineering, or if you want engineering product and design, and that's the denominator. And you track this metric and your engineering product and design leads are suddenly very aligned. They're like, okay, well this metric <laughs> has been going down for the history of the company. 
you know, day one, we would like create React app and we're amazing. You know, it was like major feature launched in two minutes by one person. Yeah. And now in the last year, we've had 80 people and we've launched one half of a thing. Like you face <laughs> that metric, you stare that in the face and suddenly you can talk about, man, we'd like this to be 10 times higher wow. in two years. What would it take to get there? And then that conversation allows you to actually make some of these investments a little more tangible. Yeah. How would you make the actual things shipped by this company 10 times faster? in a few years. Mm -hmm. I love that that metric is something that unites the three functions and that they're actually in control of, right? Because sometimes it's like, right. oh, we want this product metric to go up by 10%. It's like, well, you don't know what users are going to do, right? Like you, yeah. we don't have control over that. And so it's sort of a aspirational metric, but we can actually influence that metric of, uh, what was it? Major products per engineering decade. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love that. And then within that, within the, the engineering product and design leads, engineering can own how many of the like agreed upon things that we want to launch actually mm -hmm. get launched, whether they succeed or not. And then products can be held responsible by whether they succeed, you know, when they are built, do they succeed? Which is like, did you research the market? Do you know your users? Did you do tests well enough? And then design can be measured by like basically how frictionless is the experience, how mm -hmm. how quickly does adoption increasing, and then I don't I'm not a designer, so I don't know some of the better better metrics, but engineering can be like etc. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cool. I guess bringing it back to tech debt, even though we've talked a lot about you know what tech debt is in service of and team inertia and engineering team health, what mindsets or strategies have you found to be successful in spreading this general like approach and mindset to other engineers? Yeah, I think the, the first conversation that has to happen is what do we think we'll be working on in the future? Because you can have a lot of drift within your organization around, you know, this team will be taking shortcuts because their mandate is short term. And this team over here is fixing everything that they touch because their mandate is very long term. And the moment that the team with the short term mandate tries to pass off some of their work to this other team, you've got relational breakdown that is entirely the fault of executives. Like everybody's doing the right thing, but it doesn't fit together. So you need to have a conversation, I think, first around what parts of the system are just experiments, which parts mm -hmm. are real investments that we're like, we're committing to. And then what's the boundary between them? Don't, don't confuse those. Mm -hmm. Then within those, like if you're making experiments, there's like a, you know, a bold bet new product or feature. That's great. Do that. Take a lot of debt on like the company was starting over but use libraries that are bulletproof and shared across the whole company. And do not let that short-term thinking pollute the other stuff. And then on the other side, things that you know you're gonna need, the question I usually use to, to determine the sides is just, are we pretty sure we'll need this in five years? And it's like, mm -hmm. yeah, that, 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 you just sort it out. The stuff you're pretty sure you'll need in five years needs to be correct. Just mm -hmm. like, there's no real tolerance for not to be correct. And the way you prioritize um, fixing things is really, it, it gets into like who's around to fix what and how inspired are they for the solution. So it, it does have to come out of a conversation, but it's got to start with identifying, do we actually need this? And then how how bad do we think it's getting how fast? You make yeah. honestly one document with a list of the, the debt we think we have arranged top to bottom by roughly the category of how bad it's getting, how quickly. And I've mm -hmm. seen teams get very well aligned. Great. Yeah, the that's one thing you said earlier. Oh, yes. I think the the guidance on when to take on a lot of tech debt is so important because I think mm -hmm. in the absence of that guidance, what I've seen is engineers then they have this like, 
I feel like engineers are oh, like given a lot of praise when they build things robustly, scalably. And so then in the absence of the guidance of like, no, you should take on abundant yeah. tech debt, then they yeah. feel like they're being bad engineers and then they're not actually making the right decisions. Right? And so being yeah. super clear about this is an experiment, take on as much tech debt as you can yeah. to make the product work as quickly as possible is like so, so, so important. Totally. And that that line between this is an experiment and this stuff isn't really helps engineers, particularly ones who are more senior and who've had to fix things for a while, mm -hmm. let go and do those experiments and take on debt because they don't feel like they're compromising the work they just finished. Mm -hmm. They could, if they know that there's some sort of bulwark against it, then they can just go make a mess. And then yeah. it's like a hack week, but it's a whole product, you know, yeah. and that's great. But they do need the guidance and they also need the, like, the space that's well-defined in which to do it. Mm -hmm. Cool. Thank you so much, Jack. I really appreciated hearing your mindset. And there's a lot of things that come to mind. I'm like, oh, we should make that list at range. <laughs> so I'm sure it'll be super it. helpful for other, other engineers as well. Thank you so much, Gene. This is super fun. Thanks for listening to Lead Time Chats. If you'd like to connect, share, and grow with other engineering leaders, join us at leadtime.range.co. Lead Time Community is a space for engineering leaders who aspire to create better working environments for their teams. Hope to see you there.